This show will be starting in around two minutes. There's plenty of seats at the front. Yes, absolutely. Right. Hello, everybody. I think we can do a bit better than that. I know it's the first day of the Fringe. Let's try again. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave, and I'm your host. Now, at Stand Up Tragedy, we are a live show, but we are also a podcast. So if you like what you hear today, you can hear it another time. You can tell people to go and listen to it. It should be out tomorrow. Uh, and we do uh, what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we stand up and we do tragedy. So we invite comedians and storytellers, spoken word artists and more to come on our stage and stand up and just do some tragedy, whatever tragedy means to them. So I don't know what they're going to do. It might be really sad. It might be really funny. It might be a mix of both. But we should be prepared for tragedy to happen in this room. It's definitely going to happen. You know, normally you, you go out the room and tragedy might not happen. Well, it's definitely going to happen tonight in this room. So be prepared for tragedy. Sub, sub, uh, subjects uh, and what we try to do at Stand Up Tragedy is we try to create a safe space to talk about unsafe things so hopefully we're a nice safe audience and we're all feeling safe and we're going to listen uh, with enjoyment but also with some laughs and some and some maybe some tears who knows we've got an amazing lineup tonight so uh, just a little bit of sadmin before we start uh, Stand Up Tragedy is going to be like really going to be doing loads of different things this festival. So if you haven't got a flyer, grab one. There's one on all of your seats and you can find out about all the other shows we're doing. We're doing specials in here with loads of guest hosts uh, and we're also doing some other shows in different parts of the Fringe. So check all of that stuff out. Um, we, and so, yeah, and we're also on Tuesdays. We won't be doing Stand Up Tragedy here. We'll be do I'll be doing a conversation show with some with some guests. So come along to that. Getting better acquainted on Tuesdays. Uh, and also I'm doing my solo show, which I tell you what, if you think anything sad tonight, uh, my solo show is really sad. Like set your sad, sad, sad uh, levels at the high if you come to see my show. But that is at 12.05. It's called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. And it's a complicated show about men who are complicated people. So yes, so yeah, come and see that if you'd like to. Uh, but if you, if you, you know, as I say, it's not comedy; it's really serious. But tonight, a lot, a lot more, a lot more laughs. My show's too sad to even do on our stage, I think. So yes, so. Right, and we are part of the Free Fringe. Now, the Free Fringe is an amazing thing. It means that people can come and they can do shows like this uh, and not have to pay for the room, but we have to pay for loads of other things. So at the end, what we do is we ask you uh, if, you will, if you will contribute to us, if you will support us uh, with your money. Uh, but you don't have to. Uh, obviously, we are a free show. But if you want to, then please do. And if you can't give any money, that's fine. It's a tragic time in the economy. Bloody hell. Uh, but if you love the show, then tell people about it. That's a really good way of paying us back without paying any money. So, yes, if you want to talk about the show on Twitter, it's hashtag tragic moments. And I think that's the sad min over. So that's good, isn't it? It's always good to get the sad min or admin out of the way and move on with some actual performances. Our first performer, she is doing a show at five o'clock at Sneaky Pete's as part of the PBH Free Fringe. It's called The Science 
of Sex. She's a comedian. Um, she's here from the 8th to the 15th, so get in to her show early or you will miss it. So put your hands together, everybody, for Rosie Wilby! I'm not tall enough. The short lesbian has taken to the stage. Hello, everyone. Oh, so yes, this is the. St- I'm going to plop this out of the way over here. The stand-up tragedy has started, and um, I'm quite. Hello, hello, come in. I'm quite glad to uh, to actually find that I am here, indeed, because I believe that I narrowly avoided a tragedy last year because I got to one of my gigs. And I got to the venue and found that the poster looked rather like one of the other acts had murdered me. <laughs> Have a look at that. Doesn't it look like? Yeah, have you seen this man? He killed this woman. <laughs> uh, so I thought I would start off with a visual gag for the podcast. Uh, we'll, do, we'll, do an audio, <laughs> we'll do an audio description now for the podcast. Uh, there is a photo of a, one of those men comedians, one of those men comedians. Sometimes we let them have a go, don't we? Not very funny, but some of them are quite handsome, you know. Uh, <laughs> we let them have a go. One of those men comedians look a bit scary, mugshotty, and there's me looking like I've just taken my last walk in the park. <laughs> There she is. It was her last day. Oh, it's it's very sad. The irony is that actually at this gig, this man comedian, Alfie Brown, he didn't turn up um, because I'd murdered him. (laughs) Ha ha. No, uh, that, that's, not, that's not true. I hope Alfie Brown hasn't suddenly been murdered. I mean, uh, I've put myself right in the frame there, haven't I? Uh, so, so it is marvellous um, to be here. I thought I would, because I am doing my show, The Science of Sex. Um, I've been fascinated about relationships and sexual attraction. I thought I would talk about tragic relationships uh, for a moment. Um, has anyone ever been dumped? Do a sort of a collective kind of gasp of sorrow. Do a kind of, ah, oh, like let's channel our... Oh, 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 because it's, oh, it's terrible when you get dumped. I got dumped once in February. Yes, a few years ago in February, which is, as you know, it's a dreadful time of year to be suddenly left alone, left single, isn't it? Because nobody wants to be alone on Shrove Tuesday. <laughs> Pancake making can be a very lonely business, can't it? <laughs> and uh yes no it can it can be dreadful and but one time you know what cuz normally it is all uh, 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 it's all uh, like that when you get dumped but one time i got dumped and i thought oh actually i'm not that bothered <laughs> and it was a bit like the disappointment you feel when you come to the end of one of those moving walkways at the airport and you, <laughs> you know you sort of go oh and there is a little sense of disappointment, isn't there? Um, but but it wasn't that much. Um, but no, I I have I think as a lesbian I I was sort of you know my romantic imprint um, is tragic relationships because lesbians were always portrayed as kind of tragic characters. They had to kill themselves. They had to die. They still do. Still do in all the BBC dramas. They always die. There's always a car crash. Let's kill a lesbian. Let's kill a lesbian off. That's what they do. And um, so when I was young at college, I was in love, desperately in love with a straight woman, a heterosexual lady. Um, Well, actually, she was bisexual for one day, but I missed that. I was on a field trip. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Catherine, she was called. She was awfully right on. You know, one of those people uh, always wearing a a jumper stitched from nettles, you know. And uh, one time me and my friend Amanda saw her crossing the bridge while we were rowing on this tiny little lake, pond, shitty thing, really. And we were in this tiny little boat. And I said, oh, let's speed up so we can say hello to Catherine. I don't know what I thought was going to happen. Like, I would go, hey, I'm rowing. And she would go, oh, I'm gay now. I don't know how I thought this would transform things. Uh, but in the end, of course, I was more excited about seeing Catherine than my friend Amanda. So I sped up more with my little oar, which just meant that we went round in a little circle. It's a sad story. It's a very sad story, especially as Amanda drowned. Uh, <laughs> no, no, she didn't. She, you know, I made that. I, I hope Amanda did, hasn't drowned. I mean, because I've put myself right in the frame uh, for that there now, haven't I? That's, that's two murders I'm up for now. It's just, it's racking up. It's racking up, really. 
Um, so, so tragic relationship. It is tragic as well. Um, it's tragic being a short lesbian. I don't know if you know this. Um, because um, women often look for taller partners. Men often look for shorter partners. Even out in heterosexual um, couples. And um, But lesbians, um, these desires for a taller partner actually carry over. So it's quite hard for a short lesbian to catch up with a taller lesbian. Because she's looking for a taller lesbian. And that carries on and on. In an endless spiral. And in some ways, I've heard actually in the future that um, gay people, they're going to be able to create a baby biologically together. But I'm worried about this, right? Because I thought um, ev runaway evolutionary theory would mean that lesbians would evolve and get taller and taller and taller and taller and taller and taller. Gay men would get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. So we couldn't possibly all coexist in the same society, could we? It would be ridiculous. People would be like, oh, the lesbians are coming. Run away. They're going to crush us. With the giant Dr. Martin boots. <laughs> Pick up that little teeny tiny gay man. He can't run very fast. <laughs> with those, those tiny legs. But I haven't always been open about about being gay. Um, you know, because in the old days, not many people were gay. Now everyone's at it. It's, it's been ruined. <laughs> <laughs> now we've got to get married. God, have you heard this? <laughs> Oh, I wasn't banking on all of that nonsense, all of that, all of that gubbins. I always said, um, you know, who cares about being left on the shelf when the shelf is piled high with drugs? <laughs> <laughs> Although, to be fair, actually, that's why the lesbians are growing taller, so we can reach the shelf with the drugs. Uh, because it's always historically, it's always been the gay men that have all the all the hedonism, all the fun. It's always been them gay men because they all meet for sex on this app on their iPhones, Grinder. Have you heard of this? Have you have heard of it, Grind? It shows you where all the nearest gay men are. And they tried to invent one for lesbians, but it didn't really catch on because they gave it the really unsexy name of Brenda. <laughs> that's that's tragedy for you. That's the tragedy of being a lesbian. <laughs> yes, Brenda. And <laughs> And I logged on to it and said, Hello, Rosie, your nearest lesbian is in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. When I came out to my parents uh, years ago, I did it on April Fool's Day. <laughs> so I thought I'd have a good get out. <laughs> they didn't like it. <laughs> it turns out they did. They were excited. We're like, oh, our daughter's done something interesting. And I was the one who was all inhibited, didn't want everyone knowing. But they started going around telling all the neighbours, handing out flyers, printing up T-shirts, trying to get us all on Kilroy. My mum tried to tell me something about her and her friend Joan on holiday, which I, I didn't want to hear. But anyway, I, I do have to go in a mode. Do come and see uh, The Science of Sex. There are some flyers about on the, some of them on the seats. And uh, I will just leave you with my, my tip about, about kissing. Um, that is my favourite part of sex, because at that stage there's still hope. <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, in The Joy of Sex, it says, a good mouth-to-mouth -mouth kiss should leave its recipient breathless but not asphyxiated. So that is my, my safe sex advice um, for the rest of the Fringe, because it's a very sexy time, the Edinburgh Fringe, very sexy time, uh, unless you're doing a show. Um, when it's very, very it's nervous breakdown. Uh, it's very tragic, often, time. Uh, but thank you very much. I have to dash off to another show, but I'd love to see you at mine, or um, say hi on Twitter, at Rosie Wilby. Thanks very much. Rosie will be, everybody. Right, okay. So our next performer is doing a children's show at the Fringe this year, disgusting songs for revolting children and other funny stories. And he's using this as an opportunity to do some of his adult material. That's his show's on at 5 o'clock every day from the 8th to the 18th in the Pleasance Courtyard. So another one to get to early because he won't be here for the full run. Put your hands together, everybody, for Jay Foreman! Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello. How are we? Are we well? No, that's not what we want to hear. This is stand-up tragedy. Are we well? No, of course we're not. So I can't tell you how pleased I am to be able to do this gig where instead of in front of children, where you have to tell them that the world is such a wonderful place, instead we can just be honest with each other and admit that the world is a horrible, cold, indifferent place that doesn't love you back and everything's getting worse. And so with that in mind, uh, I would like to perform this song that I will never be able to play for the children. So uh, bear with me while I plug in.
When I'm born, oh, it will be the start of something grand. When I'm born, I'll grab my mother's finger with my tiny hand. I've been waiting in the dark for such a long time now. My parents gave up smoking just for me. Just down there, they're supposed to grow. I haven't got any legs. I haven't got any legs. I have a very long, long way to go. I could be a great inventor. I could go so far. I could be a lab technician or a movie star. But I make myself so miserable when I look down Still nothing growing where my legs belong I've tried giving them more room, I've tried hanging upside down I hope it's nothing I've been doing wrong I haven't got any legs, still haven't got any legs Gestation's very difficult figure out which band I was pastiching without trying to copy his voice. <laughs> okay, so here's the next song. I paid my cleaner to kill my cat. And my next song, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> is even sadder. say, but he'll tell nobody. 
Now to finish off, because uh, I've only got time for one more, but um, you've been lovely, thank you. So my show, um, as, as Dave said, it's uh, every day at the Pleasance Courtyard at 5pm. It says it's for children, but it's not really. It just happens to have no swearing. So please come along. And uh, the last song I'm going to do, ladies and gentlemen, is also a sad song that I will never play at the children's show. If you die whilst we're having sex per chance, I'll finish myself off before I call the ambulance. Thank you very much. My name's Jay Foreman. Enjoy the rest of the show. Bye. Jay Foreman, everybody. Okay. So our next performer is a spoken word artist. He's doing a show called Building God from the 8th to the 31st. He's got some days off, though, so check when they are. He's in the Banshee Labyrinth as well at 5, 10 every day. So put your hands... Well, not every day, I just said that. Uh, put your hands together, everybody, for David Lee Morgan! Uh, my show's not for everyone. People who like it tend to really, really like it. And uh, other people walk out. <laughs> So I, I, I don't, uh, you'll get the drift of what it's about from this one piece that I'm going to do, which is one long nine-minute thing. <laughs> if only we were ruled by lizards. We could hunt them down, put them in a zoo. If only there could be some vast conspiracy, then all we'd need to do is find the leaders, cook them in a stew, feed the hungry, start out new. Some say we do it to ourselves. Not true. The fact is we are ruled by an algorithm, an implacable mathematical formula Money into capital, capital to commodity, sold back into money again. But always increasing until the next big crash kicks in. Competing, fighting to stay alive, kill or be killed, grow or die, the lizard people. Because there are reptiles, but they don't rule the algorithm. The algorithm rules them. You can try to get rid of the lizard, but the system breeds them. Spontaneous generation. The lizard is forever, or so it seems. Maybe you want to change all this. Not easy to do. You're part of the nest, body and brain. That's how you grew. You gotta be careful. You could become a lizard too. You can't do it alone, you gotta reach out. It's a labor of love, one nest, one heart. You gotta pull it apart, pull out all the threads if you wanna get at the lizard inside your head. You can't do it alone, you gotta reach out. It's a labor of love, one nest, one heart. You gotta pull it apart, pull out all the threads if you wanna get at the lizard inside your head. Imagine living in a country with three quarters of a billion people inside its borders. Three times the population of North America. Twice the entire population of Africa. Everywhere you look, you see pain and suffering. You can't look away and you don't want to. You want to take it all in, straight to the heart. You know in the big cities, they sweep up dead bodies off the street every day. You know they chain workers to the machines. You can see starvation, people driven from their homes, women treated like cattle, babies murdered for the crime of being female. See the country torn into pieces by feuding warlords, predator nations chewing on the bones. In the foreign enclaves, the signs on the windows say, no Chinese and no dogs. And this is China, 
You start out as a teacher, but you won't teach what you're told. You look at the dirty hands of the peasants on the street and you come to see your hands are dirty, theirs are clean. You make your way to the big city. You study every book you can lay your hands on. You find about about Marx and the idea of communism. And you come to believe a revolution can succeed, but only if the working class can lead. Not because of the biggest class in China, far from it. Not because they're special people or even the most oppressed. They're not. But you understand that individuals can rise up out of their class position. Peasants can get land and become landlords. Colonies can grow strong and become predator nations. But working people as a class cannot be free until everyone is free, shares in the work, owns the tools they need to build the world collectively. Until race and sex, brain and brawn, town and country become sources of richness and creativity. Until every old idea that props up class society is challenged and debated, understood and struck down. You join a party that stands for the things you've come to believe in. You lead strikes and take part in peasant rebellions. When the government armies attack and kill tens of thousands, you lead a long march out into the country. You set up a base and begin to build a new society where peasants farm the land in cooperation, where everyone has the right to an education, where foot binding and forced marriage are a crime, where women hold up half the sky. You build a great army. You take down the warlords, drive out the invaders, occupy the cities, break the chains in every factory. When you march into Peking, you say, the Chinese people have stood up. But that was only the beginning. It was never just about China, the nation. That was only the first step on the road to liberation. And now the party and its army split into two factions. Some say, this is our stop. We get off here. We were okay with a bit of democracy, but now it's time to build up the factories, put the revolution on hold indefinitely. But you believe the most powerful idea, the most powerful force on the planet is an idea whose time has come. Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, but that means nothing if the gun is pointed in the wrong direction. You see party leaders feathering their nest, health care only for the upper crust. You say the Ministry of Culture should be renamed the Ministry of Emperors, Ghosts and Concubines. Because there's nothing about workers, nothing about peasants, nothing about the life they lead, the work they do, and the ideas buzzing around inside their heads. The revolution is not going too slow, it's going backwards. So you put out the call for a new revolution against your own party, bombard the headquarters. But here's the contradiction. It takes power to change the world. It takes power to change a light bulb. It takes power to build schools. It takes power to change the rules. You need a party to lead the fight, but the fight is inside the party too. You study the Russian Revolution and you come to see that the fight will always be the most intense inside, at the center, at the top of the party, because the lizard people breed wherever there is power and prestige. But it's not enough to just chuck out the lizards because you are fighting an algorithm and it isn't a person or even a thing. It's a pattern embedded in an almost infinite number of individual transactions. Step by step you have to change the way things are done, the way goods are produced and passed on. But most of all, the way people think. Because either money moves the world, either the algorithm rules, or the people do. And people power is most of all about ideas. People power is love, crystallized into thought and deed. So you roll the dice, and you take your ideas to the street. For ten long years, the battle rages on. The cultural revolution. Peasants, workers, students, soldiers, on every corner, in every factory, school, and farm, even in the army, challenging authority. Which side are you on? Communism or capitalism? One simple question, but oh so complex in application. In every situation, does this unleash the creative powers of the people, or does it suppress them? And the lizards fight back. They wave the red flag too. Anyone can do it. They organize their own red guards to fight against your red guards. They mobilize the sections of the army loyal to them. And when you die, they win. They kill your comrades and put them in prison. They write a new history. They create an industry of victim literature. 
those who died fighting for revolution are used as statistics to support the very thing they were fighting against. The return of capitalism, the end of worker cooperation and peasant power, the end of healthcare and universal education. Inside and out, China becomes a predator nation. Even immortal ideas can die, but there are those who rem even un unforgettable lessons can be unlearned. But there are those who remember, who were inspired, and those who will become inspired. Because we will never stop fighting to spread the word. We will never stop fighting to learn from the amazing things that people of China did. We will honor their memory even to the point of learning from their mistakes. Because revolution is a science and it learns from failure. Fail again, fail better, fail again, fail better, but never just more of the same. And maybe it seems like nothing has changed. The algorithm still rules, riding on our backs, driving the planet to an early grave. But in another way, everything has changed because now we know it can be done. It was almost done in Russia. We came even closer in China. It took capitalism hundreds of years to replace feudalism. And that was just to change one ruling class for another one. We are fighting for so much more than that. So much more than that. And we have only just begun. David Lee Morgan, everybody. Okay. So our next performer is another spoken word act, but very different. Uh, she is doing a show called How I Became by uh, How I Became Myself by Becoming Someone Else. That's at twelve thirty every day at the Cowgate Head from the eighth to the thirtieth of August. Put your hands together, everybody, for Paula Vajak. Oh, I'm not as tall as I thought either. Ox. Um, I was going to say, come to my show, et cetera, but then Dave did it. But, but just to kind of embed this image into your head, if you see this poster, which you probably won't because I got my posters really late. So if you see this poster really low on the ground, which is a tragedy in and of itself, pick it up, stick it in the wall, and it looks like this. Um, I really wanted to do something from from my show, and I feel I feel bad saying this here, but it's not a sad show. It's kind of a feel-good show. I know, it's weird. But but it's okay, because two years ago, I did a solo show that was all about losing one of my friends to cancer, which was, which was not a feel-good show. So forgive me if this time I needed something that ended on a kind of lighter note. But um, I'm going to pick up where Rosie left off, and I'm going to go take the tragic thread of heartbreak, which is something I know very, very well, and tell you a story that's about Valentine's Day, not Shrove Tuesday, which is a little bit heartbreaking. And um, do, do you know, ha have you ever seen one of these pocket warmers? You know, okay, you've seen them. So, so if you haven't seen one, um, you get them in the winter and you, you know, you keep them in your pocket to keep you warm. So I had this, I had this boyfriend uh, who had a thing about hearts. Well, heart-shaped things. <laughs> So then I make him this box of heart-shaped things for Valentine's Day, and I spend the whole day making this box. There's uh, postcards with images of hearts, and then on the back I'm writing quotes that related to hearts. And then when I finish, I sprinkle confetti, miniature silver hearts, all along the outside. So when I give it to him, he, well, he basically seems mystified. And he says, thank you sincerely enough, but he admits, uh, babes, maybe you took the heart thing too far. But there was one thing he liked in the box. It was this pocket warmer, heart-shaped. Now, you know what a pocket warmer is, but if you've never seen one before, let me tell you how it works. So there's this little disc in the middle, right? And when you press on it, it sets off this chemical reaction, and then it's warm for hours, only I didn't know when I gave it to him that that only happens once. Because the next time you press on the disc, nothing happens. Because the second time is kind of more tricky. The second time takes work. you got to heat the thing. Slowly. 
in a saucepan of boiling water for hours until it's warm enough to take into the cold. And so over the months that passed, I kind of forgot about it because I didn't see it until it was winter and the weather it wasn't the only thing that had cooled. I had a gig that evening and I'm talking to the host who's asking me about myself. What did people want to know about me? I... I am not a good person. Uh, I'm working on this album. I, I have a theater show, and I hurt people. Um, and there's this film. I hurt people who love me. Look, will you excuse me? I go to my boyfriend who's arrived, and he puts my hand on his pocket, and it's warm. And I try to take my hand away, but he puts it back. And then he opens this pocket over his chest, and then he hands me this heart-shaped thing the pocket warmer. He's looking into my eyes and it is heartbreaking. And right that moment, I even hate the word heartbreaking. I mean, how can a word so painful be so overused? Heartbreaking. He asks me if I have any pockets and I say, no, I am wearing a dress. I'm wearing a dress, your coat, he says. I have no pockets, I say, with my hands thrust firmly inside them. And right then, I want to scream because I know what will happen. He will give it to me. Please take a seat. But later, it will cool. And I will look at it in my hands, crumpled in some horrible shape, and think, this is my fault. He gave it to me, and this is what I did. And I know it's silly, that it's only a pocket warmer. But then he makes it romantic, symbolic, when romance is dirtier than any four-letter word like love. When I find it later in my bag, I'm outside this train station smoking, and then... A droplet of condensation lands on my face, slides down my cheek, and it resembles what it feels, but it's fitting because somehow I'm, I'm unable to cry. Do you know, <laughs> have you ever seen one of these pocket warmers? So, kind of weird postscript to that story. I, I write a piece about it because that's what I do. <laughs> And uh, time passes, and me and the ex-boyfriend become friends. And you know what it's like when you're friends with an ex? Like, initially, it's that you're friends, but not really. And then, eventually, you actually start to invite them to things, and you hang out. And maybe it's been, like, years since the breakup. And I'm having this launch party in this venue that I'd chosen because I was struggling to find a venue. And I hadn't been there in a long time for some reason. So I invite my friend, ex-boyfriend, and I'm like, oh, I'm really glad that you, that you came. And he was like, yeah, it was kind of hard for me because I thought it was a little bit strange you'd invite me to where we broke up. Because <laughs> the thing is, what happens sometimes as a performer is that even though I always perform true stories, sometimes when you perform them over a period of time, they're still yours, but they kind of become abstracted. So I didn't realize that that bar where I had performed in that night where he'd given me back the pocket warm we'd broken up, was the same venue six years later where I had the launch of this new business I was sitting up with for a friend. And, and I hadn't been to that venue in all that time, probably because I was avoiding it after the breakup. But now I know. So, hey, life meets art. What can you say? Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been Paula Varjak. Um, Paula Varjak. Varjak spelled like carjack, but with a V. Um, I'm, I'm the only Paula Varjak on the Internet. So if you Google me, you'll find out everything you ever did and didn't want to know about me, so please come see my show. It's on for the full run. I'm an idiot. I didn't take a day off. 12.30 at Calgate Head. Thanks a lot. Paula Varjak, everybody. Okay, so now we've got our, our last performer of the evening, and thankfully she's arrived as well, which is great, because that would have been a real tragedy if she hadn't made it. So she's doing a show called How to Be Fat at the Zoo Southside from uh, at 6.55 from the 8th to the 31st of August. It's a really amazing show. I've seen it. I love it. All the shows that have been, that have been talked about today are amazing as well, but this one, really, really amazing. Go and see it. I really recommend it. Uh, so... Put your hands together for Matilda Gregory! I'll just trip her up on the way up, up on the stage. I'm literally so fat, I can't get on stage. Thank you very much. I am, fa I am fabulous. Um, I brought my uh, scales with me. Ludicrously, a particularly heavy prop, I have discovered. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass this is some pens and post-it notes. 
what I want you to do is, I want you to try and guess how much I weigh. <laughs> just, just take a post-it note, write how much I weigh. I used to not let people do kilos, but I've got really, like, au fait about that now. If you're European, you want to do kilos, that's fine. If you're American, you want to do pounds, I will try. <laughs> but basically, I'm having a guess my weight competition. It's, um, it's like a guess... This is, this is what happens to fat people. <laughs> like, one, you can't get on stage because they've not made enough room. Next, the stage starts collapsing under you. This is how oppressed I am. Um, so, yeah, so I'm having a guess my weight competition. Like, the guess the weight of a cake that you'd have at a fate. Except, obviously, you don't win a cake. You win me. This is not a good prize. If you're not sure about that, I would suggest that you really examine your need to own a fat middle-aged woman. <laughs> but basically, um, yeah, it's like, so it's like, uh, yeah, so you guess what, Kate, you guess closest to what I weigh, I'm coming home with you. Um, so basically, it's, yeah, it's not a good prize, I'm sorry about that. I'm, I'm really expensive to run. I mean, I eat a lot of cake for a start. In many ways, winning me is the exact opposite of winning a cake because I will consume any cake that you do already own. But, you know, have a go anyway, you know, for the glory. Um, basically, I'm doing a show about how fat I am. It's quite a difficult show to do because fat people don't really get to have conversations about being fat very often. Like, even when I'm flyering for my show, I don't really know. I hope you're talking about how fat I am. Okay, that's allowed. And the, you can talk about how fat I am and nothing else. Um, that's fine. Are you just deciding whether to do pounds or kilos or stone? Yeah, I mean, it's probably easiest if you do stone because I think that's what most people understand. Stone is probably easiest for people to understand, in, you know, in terms of, like, how fat I am. But do we want... So when I'm flyering for the show, I don't really know whether to, like, specifically flyer fat people. Like, I don't know how they will feel about that. Like, I want them to come to the show. I've made the show for them. I don't know if they'll be pleased. Uh, or whether they'll just be like, fuck off. I just don't, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. It's, it's, it's difficult. Because I think that, like, even though I'm fat, like, it's quite difficult to start a conversation, even as a fat person, with another fat person about being fat. Because you're not really meant to, like, tell fat people that they're fat. Like, there aren't many circumstances in which that's Okay. I mean, I've thought of three. I mean, like, one time it's okay to tell fat people that they're fat is, like, if you're shouting at them out of a speeding van. Another time you can tell fat people that they're fat is if you're traumatizing a child for their own good. And the other time is you can tell fat people that they're fat if you're, like, a medical professional and you want to deny someone the health care that they need. Other than that, you're not really allowed to tell fat people that they're fat. And even if you are a fat person, you're not really meant to say that you're fat. Like, people don't really like it if you tell them that you're fat. Like, even though, like, they can see you, they don't want you to say to, say to them that, that you're fat. Like, I do this show about being fat. So I get on stage and I say I'm fat. And people are just, like, they sometimes come up to me after the show and they sort of do this thing where they kind of go, like, oh, like, do you know this noise? Like, oh, you're not. You're, you fell through the stage, but you're not. You're not fat. You're, um, you're not fat. And it's, it's hard to really know how to respond to this because I am fat and I know that I am. And the reason that I know is because I'm literally inside this all the time. Like, I don't get a day off. I live here. So like, I know that I'm fat. I don't look at a photograph of myself and I'm really surprised that I've got an arse. In the same way that, you know, you wouldn't look at a photograph of your house and be surprised that it had an upstairs. Like, I know that I'm fat. And when people say, oh, you're not fat, it's sort of... I mean, I know they mean to be nice. I know it's meant to be nice. But, well, I mean, they are always men that say it. But there's always, like, a slight element of, like, hello, I'm from the patriarchy... I noticed you assessed your own body there. I'm here to tell you that's my job. And you're not, you're not fat. But also, when you are fat and people tell you that you're fat, tell you that, sorry, tell you that you're not fat, it's always hard like, not to hear this other message, that this message is what they're really saying to you. It's like, this thing that you are, 
that we both know that you are because I can see you and you live in there. This thing that you are is so horrifying that we're just both going to have to pretend it's not fucking happening in order to continue as humans. It's hard. Fat people, we're not really allowed to say that we're fat. What's strange is thin people are allowed to say they're fat. Thin people are allowed to say, oh, I'm so fat. And then everyone around them gets to say, no, 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 no. You're not fat. And that's fun for everyone, especially fat people. We love that. We love it when you do that. When you say, like, oh, list all the thi- oh, tell me all the things you're doing in order to not look like me, please. You know, the thing that like, I get up at five o'clock in the morning and I poke myself in the eye and I hate doing it, but what's the alternative? And I'll be standing there and they'll be like, what's the alternative? And I'll be like, I don't, I don't know. What is the alternative? What could it be? I've got no idea. Because I can't really say to them that, you know, the alternative is being fat like I am. Because that would involve a fat person acknowledging that they're fat in a conversation, which can never happen. So if you're lucky, you know, they go on. They'll tell you all the things they do in order to not be fat in great detail. Like, you know, I only eat salmon or walls. You know, I only eat when I'm in a war zone. And when I'm not in a war zone, I can eat whatever I like. And that, they, they, it's a weird, like, there's weird diets where you like fast at certain times and eat at other times. And like, it's really, because when you can eat whatever you want, you kind of, guess what, you're really hungry for the fasting and you end up eating like the same amount you would have eaten anyway, but in a really weird and inconvenient way. But that's apparently, that's fine. Have you all done your guess? Does anyone here know what they weigh? Like, do you know what you weigh, like, right now? People know what, you just know what you weigh. Does anyone have no idea what they weigh? No idea at all. Does anyone know what their BMI is? Sometimes people boo BMI when I say it, and I don't think they're wrong to do that, because BMI is like a weird thing, isn't it? Are you still talking about weight? Are you still talking about how fat I am, or are you talking about something else? Are you discussing whether or not you know how much you weigh? Yeah, it's just a rhetorical question. You don't really have to come up with an answer for me right now. <laughs> but like, um, BMI is like, it's just like made up space science. Like I do a show about how fat I am, I don't know what BMI is, so that basically means no one knows, surely. But I think what it is, it's something like your weight plus your height. Take away your self-esteem. No, self-esteem's obviously not involved. But I think, I think a good BMI to have is about two. And I think my BMI is about 7,000. That means if you look at me, you get type 2 diabetes. Like a sort of fat Medusa. And then that's apparently true, that like fat people can make people fat just by being fat near them. Apparently, I don't know how, because I'm not going to give you any of my fucking food. <laughs> so anyway, what I usually do is I get someone to read the scales. It's like, what, how fat do you think this is? Would you mind reading the scales? Are you happy to do that? All I want you to do is just say into the mic what it says. That says 110. Okay. Yeah, of course. 115. Uh, 18. So it's 115 kilos, 18 stone. Has anyone got 18 stone? Anyone like a few pounds or a few kilos off? 120, that's not bad. Five kilos, anyone closer than 120 is five kilos off. 110. I think you've won, do you live somewhere nice? (laughs) I think you've won me. I think I'm coming home with you tonight. Um, You are now financially and legally responsible for everything I do. And the fringe is quite expensive. <laughs> so I've got a show. It's called How to Be Fat. It's at Zoo Southside at 1855 every day. I've got some flyers. Thank you very much. Matilda Gregory, everybody. Okay, so this is kind of the end of the first show of Stand Up Tragedy. I think that's, that's worth a bit of a cheer, I think. Yeah, I think so. A little bit of one. Good. It's always, a, it's always good to have a lukewarm cheer. It always makes me feel really good. Um, right. Yes, so uh, you can find out more about Stand Up Tragedy at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. Uh, that will tell you all of the different shows we're doing, all of the lineups we've got. It's a different lineup every night, so if you enjoy tonight, come back another night and you might hate it. Uh, or if you hate it tonight, come back another night and you might love it. That's how it goes. Different lineup every single night. 
And I don't know what they're going to do, which is exciting for me. And hopefully that was exciting for you. So, yes, when you leave the room, please consider giving back for some tragedy, you know? Like, if you've enjoyed what you've seen, please give some money back because it does genuinely cost a lot of money to be here. And I, I'm freelance, so I'm fucked basically in my life. So I'm putting everything on it. Uh, so if you want like a, an emotional kind of blackmail sort of side of it, you can go with that if you like. If you want to really consider like you're helping the tragedy of my life by giving me some money. But if you want to like think a bit more highly than that, then think about how at the moment we're screwed in terms of the arts in this country because we've got the most tragic government in fucking years. And uh, so it's a good time to give some money back to people if you can, if you can afford it. And if you can't afford it, which is understandable, please spread the word, tweet about it, tragic moments, Let's share the tragedy, spread the tragedy, and talk about those sad and dark things that we're too scared to talk about, like the Tory government. Okay, so thanks very much for coming. It's time to go, as I'm singing over myself. Thank you for coming, and uh, good. I, I'm basically scared of like silence, so if you don't clap, I'll just kind of keep talking. There we go. Thank you very much. Check out the whole lineup we've got. We've got some amazing guest hosts. Thank you very much.